Chapter Thirteen of Delorme by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen. By a long system of exact economy, my mother had by this time repaired in some degree the ravages which many generations of extravagance had committed on our family estates. And though the pimple-nosed maitre d'hôtel and old Houssay, with two other septuagenarian lackeys who might be considered as heirlooms in the family, still maintained their faces in the hall, yet four other more youthful attendants had been added to the number, and on the first day of the Marquis de Saint-Brie's arrival, all eight figured in new bright liveries of green and gold, with well-starched ruffs and white sword-scabbards. This was an expansion of liberality on the part of my mother, which I had not expected. Not that for a moment I mean to insinuate that the spirit of frugality was in her the effect of a sordid heart. Far from it, it was the effort of her mind which had ever been a painful one. She had herself experienced all the uncomforts of that miserable combination, a great name and an inferior fortune, and she was resolved, if possible, to save her son from the same distresses. At the present instance, she was actuated by a feeling of that refined delicacy towards her husband, which ever taught her not only to respect him herself, but to throw a veil even round his foibles, for the purpose of hiding them from the eyes of the others. She had heard my father calmly talk to the Marquis de Saint-Brie, on the former visit, of his retinue and his vassals, and a slight smile had played about the guest's lip which my father never saw, but which wounded my mother for him. She instantly determined to sacrifice some part of her system of economy, without attempting any vain display, or going beyond what she could reasonably afford, and the present effect was that which I have described. We dined in general a little after noon, but on the day of the Marquis's arrival, which was looked upon by the servants as one of those occasions of ceremony, when their rights and privileges were to be as strictly enforced as the official tenures at a royal coronation, the announcement of dinner was somewhat delayed by a contest between Houssay and the maître d'hôtel, in regard to which should sound the trumpet. Houssay grounded his claim upon patent of office as the trumpeter-general to the counts of Bigorre, and the maître d'hôtel contended for the honour as a right prescriptive, which he had exercised for thirty years. The maître d'hôtel would certainly have carried the day, being in possession of the brazen tube in dispute, but Houssay, like a true old soldier, hung upon his flanks, embarrassed his manoeuvres, and at length defeated him by a coup de main. The maître d'hôtel, having possession, as I have said, resolved to exercise his right, and at the hour appointed raised the trumpet to his lips, and prepared an energetic breath. His red cheeks swelled till they looked like a ripe pomegranate. His eyes stared as if they would start from their sockets. His long, pimpled nose was nearly eclipsed by its rubicund neighbours, the cheeks, and would hardly have been seen but for a vibratory sort of movement about the end, produced, probably, by the compression of his breath. All announced a most terrible explosion, when suddenly the undaunted Houssay stepped up and applying his thumb to the cheek of this unhappy aspirant to tubicinal honours, expelled the breath before the lips were prepared. The cheeks sunk, the eyes relapsed, the nose protruded, 
and a hollow murmur died along the resonant cavities of the brass, a sort of dirge to the pseudo-trumpeter's defeat. The whole scene was visible to me through the open door of the vestibule, and so irresistibly comic was it altogether that I could not refrain from staying to witness its termination. Again the maître d'hôtel essayed the feat, and again the malicious Houssay rendered his efforts abortive, upon which the discomforted party declared he would carry his cause before a higher tribunal, and was proceeding towards my father's apartments to state his grievances. But he committed one momentous oversight which completed his defeat. In the agitation of the moment he laid the trumpet down. Houssay pounced upon it like lightning, started upon a chair, and applied the brass to his lips. The maître d'hôtel threw his arms round him to pull him down, but Houssay's weight overbalanced his adversary, and both rolled upon the floor together. The old trumpeter, however, had blown many an inspiring blast on horseback and on foot, in the charge, in the retreat, in the camp, or in the rage of the battle. All situations were alike to him, and as he rolled over and over with the maître d'hôtel, he still kept the trumpet to his lips, and blew, and blew, and blew, till such a call to the standard echoed through the chateau as had never before disturbed its peaceful halls. After I had seen the conclusion of this doughty contention, I was proceeding towards my father's library, when I was met in the corridor by the whole party coming from their various apartments. My father resigned to no one the honour of handing down the countess, and the marquis turned to offer his hand to Helen, who followed her, giving a slight sort of start as his eye fell upon so much loveliness. "'I did not know, madam,' said he, "'that you had so fair a daughter.' "'She is no father, my daughter,' replied the countess, looking back to Helen with a smile, "'than in being the daughter of my love. Mademoiselle Arnaud, Monsieur le Marquis de Saint-Brie.' The hall, as we entered it, looked more splendid than ever I had seen it. With infinite labour, the old banners that flaunted in the air above the table had been cleared of their antique dust. All our family plate was displayed upon the buffet, and the eight liveried lackeys, in their new suits, gave an air of feudal state to the hall that it had not possessed since the days of Henri IV. During the first service but little was said by any one. After the grave employment of half an hour, however, the mind would fain have its share of activity, and though somewhat impeded by the gross elements of the body, found means to issue forth and mingle with the banquet. "'The bird of Juno,' said the Marquis, pointing to a peacock that, with its spread tail and elevated crest, ornamented the centre of the table, "'is a fitting dish in such a proud hall as this. I love to dine in a vast and antique room, with every haughty accessory that can give solemnity to the repast.' "'And is it,' demanded my father, with a smile, "'from a conviction of the importance or the littleness of the employment?' "'Oh, of its meanness, certainly,' replied the Marquis. "'It needs, I think, all the ingenuity of man's pride, "'all that he can collect of grand or striking, associated with himself, "'to soothe his vanity under the weight of his weaknesses and necessities. "'And what can be more painfully degrading than this propensity to devour?' "'It is a philosophy I can hardly admit,' replied my father. "'The simple act of eating is surely not degrading, "'and when employed but as the means of support, "'it becomes dignified by the great objects to which it tends, 
the preservation of life, the invigorating the body, and, consequently, the liberation of the mind from all those oppressive chains with which corporeal weakness or ill-health is sure to enthrall it. In my eyes, everything that nature has given or taught is beautiful, and never becomes degrading but by the corruption with which it is mingled by man himself. I know not, answered the Marquis, smiling at the enthusiasm with which my father sustained what was one of his most favourite theses, but I can conceive no dignity in eating the mangled limbs of other animals slaughtered for our use. You look not so cynically, I hope, on all other failings of humanity, demanded my mother, willing to change the subject, and changing it to one on which every Frenchwoman thinks or has thought a great deal. She added, Love, for instance. The Marquis bowed. No one can be more devoted, replied he, to the lovelier part of the creation than I am, and yet I cannot but think that the ancients did well to represent Venus as springing from the foam of the sea. Somewhat light, you would say, in her nature, rejoined my father, and variable as her parent waves. And sometimes as cold and as uncertain, too, said I, but as I did so I saw a slight flush pass over Helen's brow, and I added, but you forget, Monsieur le Marquis, or rather, like a skilful arguer, you do not notice, that the blood of Coilus, which we translate almost literally to drop from heaven, was mingled with the foam of the sea to produce the goddess. Happily turned, replied the Marquis with a smile, but I trust, my young friend, you are aware that the Queen of Love is only to be won by the God of Arms, as our sweet and tumid Rackham would put it. Have you yet entered the path in which you were born to distinguish yourself? I mean the service of your king. With somewhat of a blush I replied that I had not, and the Marquis proceeded, Fie now, tis a shame that a sword, which I know, to my cost, is a good one, should rust in its scabbard. Every gentleman, whatever may be his ultimate objects in life, should serve his country for at least one campaign. It is rumoured that our wars in Italy will infallibly be renewed. In that case I shall of course take the command of my regiment, and if your noble father will allow you to accompany me, we will turn the two good swords that once crossed upon a foolish quarrel against the enemies of our king and our country. Without a moment's hesitation I should have accepted the proposal, but my mother interposed. I have already, said she, after having expressed her thanks to the Marquis for the honour he proposed to her son, I have already written to Her Highness the Countess de Soissons, who honoured me in my youth with her favour and affection, soliciting, if it be possible, that Louis may, for a short period, enjoy the advantage of being near Monsieur le Comte, her son. I have no doubt that she will comply with my request, and, at all events, we must, of course, suspend every other plan till Her Highness's answer is received. The Marquis appeared somewhat mortified, but immediately changed the conversation to other subjects, and certainly no man I ever met could render himself more fascinating when he chose to do so. His language was as elegant as his manners, and he mingled with a playful, shining, unforced wit a slight degree of cynical bitterness, which rendered it more exciting by its pungency. He had the great art, too, of suiting his conversation exactly to those with whom he conversed, not precisely as the chameleon, taking its hue from the object next to it, but rather like a fine piece of polished china, 
receiving a sufficient reflection from whatever salient colour was placed near, without losing the original figures with which it was itself marked. Thus he never lost in manner a certain degree of pride, which was the great master passion of his soul. But when he wished to please or win, he made even this pride subservient to his purpose, by acting as an opposition to his courtesy and condescension. Nor did he ever, in the fits of that cynical humour, which he either affected or possessed from nature, go beyond the exact point at which it could amuse or stimulate those that listened to him, and he calculated, with wonderful insight into their characters, the precise portions that each could bear or relish. With whatever feelings one entered his society, one quitted it struck and fascinated. I did so myself, notwithstanding the warning I had received with regard to him, notwithstanding a strong prepossession against him. I felt attracted, amused, and pleased, and every minute that I passed in his company I had to recall the demoniacal passions his countenance had expressed at Estelle, and ask myself, can this be the same man? It was, and when closely observed, there was a glance of malignity in the eye, which, if rightly read, would have told that there the real man shone out, and that the rest was all a mask. The nations of the East have a superstition that their dives, afri, and other evil spirits have the power of transforming themselves into the most beautiful and enticing shapes, but that some one spot of their body is always exempt from this change and remains in its original hideousness. Thus I believe it is with the human character. Give it what gracious form you will, there is still some original feature will rest unchanged, to show what shape it has at first received from nature. The Marquis de Saint-Brie, however, maintained the doubtful favour he had gained with the inhabitants of the Chateau de Lorme as long as he remained within its walls, which was during the space of three days. Each passed much like the former, with the exception of the second, in the course of which we went out upon the mountains to shoot the izzard. At the hour appointed for setting forth, it so happened that I was a moment later than my father and the Marquis. My mother, too, was in the court, seeing the preparations for our departure, when, on going from my bedchamber into the corridor, I was met by Helen, who, instead of passing me hastily, as she usually did, paused a moment, as if anxious to speak. Her cheek was rather flushed, and I never did behold her looking more lovely. The temptation to delay was not to be resisted, and besides, such a moment might never come again. "'Helen,' said I, taking her hand, "'dearest Helen, I would give a word to speak with you alone, for but five minutes. You once said you loved me. You promised me you would always love me. Helen, you must have seen how much I have wished for such an opportunity.' and yet you have never, since my return, given me one moment of your private time. Indeed, Louis, she answered, still letting me keep her hand. I could not then, I thought it would be wrong. Now, perhaps I may think differently, and I will no longer avoid you as I have done. But what I sought you for now was to say, beware of that Marquis de Saint-Brie. I am sure, I feel sure, that he is a villain, and, oh, Louis, beware of him, for your sake, for mine. So saying, she waited for no reply, but drawing away her hand, glided back to the Countess's apartments. Oh, what a nicely balanced lever is the mind of youth! 
a breath will depress it or a breath will raise for days before i had been gloomy and desponding existence and all that surrounded it i had looked upon with a jaundiced eye which saw only defects i could have quarrelled with the sunbeam for ever casting a shade the summer breeze for ever bearing a vapour on its wings and now i went away from helen with a heart beating high with expectation and delight one kind word one affectionate look one expression of interest and love and every cloud was banished from my mind and all was again sunshine and summer and enjoyment my father and the marquis had already set out but a few steps brought me to their side and speeding on towards the heights above the valley of Argelay, we separated to beat a narrow lateral dell while the servants spreading in a larger circle drove the game in towards us my father took his range along one side of the hollow and i on the other while the marquis chose a path above mine having a view of the whole side of the hill for some time we met with little success when suddenly an izzard bounded away along the path about three hundred yards in advance before i could fire it was out of shot but springing after it i followed eagerly along the shelf of rock knowing that a little farther a precipice intervened which i did not believe the animal could leap and consequently if it escaped me it must run up the hill and cross the marquis or go down into the valley and come within my father's range as i went on circling round the mountain a piece of rock jutted out across the path about thirty yards in advance and hid the precipice from my view the izzard i doubted not was there hesitating on the brink as they often do when the leap is dangerous and hoping to obtain a shot at it before it turned i was hurrying on when suddenly i heard the ringing of a carbine and a bullet whistled close to my ear its course must have lain within two inches of my head and not a little angry i turned and saw the marquis standing on a rock a little way above me there there cried he pointing with his hand there i have missed him why don't you fire at that moment i caught a sight of the izzard actually springing up the most perpendicular part of the mountain it was almost beyond the range of my carbine but however i fired and the animal rolled down dead into the valley neither the marquis nor myself alluded to the shot which he had discharged and it remains a very great doubt in my mind whether he had missed me or the izzard End of chapter thirteen